Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my beautiful, wonderful, fabulous co-host Octavia Bright. Hi. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually blushing. Well, you always say nice adjectives about me in the mini-sode, so I thought, you know. We tried it. I should express my love for you more. Those were so these many introductions. nice adjectives. Well, they're all true. <laughs> Happy 2020, Octavia. Happy 2020. It's a big change. New yeah. decade, new year. I know, it's wild. Are you feeling new? Very clear-sighted. Just totally clear vision. That's what I'm into. Great. Well, what, <laughs> what a great coincidence, because today on the show... We are going to be talking about new beginnings in literature. Oh my God, get out of here. I know, it's crazy, isn't it's it? It's so on point, what the fuck? How did we do that? <laughs> <laughs> From the novels of Virginia Woolf to memoirs like Amy Liptrot's The Outrun, we'll look at books that feature rejuvenation and think about why it is such a fertile topic for storytelling. Joining us is Anne Yu, whose hotly anticipated debut novel, Braised Pork, has inspired our theme. Braised Pork is the story of a young artist in contemporary Beijing who finds her husband dead in their bathtub. From there, she must begin her life again and travel to real and surreal places, including the mysterious world of water. Octavia, do you want to introduce her? Absolutely. Anne Yu was born and raised in Beijing and left at the age of 18 to study in New York at NYU. A graduate of the NYU MFA in creative writing, she writes her fiction in English. She's 26 years old and she lives between Paris and Hong Kong. Braised Pork is her first novel. So today, you'll hear our interview with Anne Yu. We'll talk more generally about the theme of new beginnings in literature. And finally, we will give you our usual book recommendations. So come take our hand and start over with us on Literary Friction 2020. I want you to know that Carrie gave me the soft eyes as she said that. <laughs> I meant to. <laughs> Anne Yu, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. Thank you for having me. We've asked you to start with a reading from Braised Pork. Can sure. you tell us what you're going to be reading? I'm going to be reading from the middle of it uh, where the protagonist, Jia Jia, is trying to paint um, this creature that she's seen in a sketch that her, hus her late husband left for her. I don't think it needs too much context. It's just her painting um, the sketch. Back home, Jia Jia placed the fish man sketch next to a blank canvas and studied it. She wanted to paint it. Her idea was that the experience of reinterpreting Chen Hang's sketch as her own art would give her a clue or two about the fish man and her husband's dream in Tibet. She had often done this when she found it difficult to relate to a piece of artwork. She would reproduce it into her own canvas and through this understand what that piece meant to her. The sketch looked easy enough to copy. After all, it was only the face that was intricate. The body could have been drawn by a child, she sketched the outline of the fish man onto the canvas with a pencil. The light was shining from the upper left corner, so she briefly shadowed out parts on the right side. She stepped back and observed the proportions, about a third for the head and the rest for the body. She would have to decide on the colors of the fish, and Chen Hao's drawing gave no help here. The silver fish from the deep sea came to her mind. It was a good start, she thought. Next, she had to mix the paint for the background, she began with a vibrant blue, like the shallow parts of the ocean on a sunny day. It was challenging as always. The colors came out artificial, like food coloring. She put her brush down and imagined the sea in a transparent blue, constantly changing in hue when the waves moved in soft, quiet beats. She added some yellow to her paint and spread it neatly around the fish man. 
dipping a smaller brush into silver paint and then mixing it with some gray, and finally, with a dab of dark, muted green, she painted its body. She wanted it to be like Chen Han's drawing, rough and unfinished, so she left it at the blocking stage and avoided adding too much detail. Jia Jia was unable to paint the face. That part of the canvas, as if rejecting her, erased all the outlines and colors from her mind. Whenever she looked at the empty face of the fish man, it was as if she had forgotten how to paint. She did not know where to put the eyes, what color the lips should be, how much space the nose was supposed to occupy. Sure, she could measure out the proportions from Chen Han's sketch and transfer it to her own canvas, but she had never liked to work that way. Even though she was copying, it still had to be her painting. In the days following, she painted more. She took out six canvases and painted different versions of the fish man. Sometimes she began with the body, other times with the face. But whenever she directed her brush to the empty oval where the face was supposed to be, her mind went blank, and she could not recall what kind of an expression the fish man wore. Only at night, when she lay in bed, would its face finally come to her, lucid and precise. She would jump up, go to her canvas, pick up her brush, and all the images would evaporate from her mind again. Once she looked through the photography book that Leo had given her. But quickly remembered that it was entirely filled with landscape photos. Had someone given this collection to her when she was younger, it would have helped her tremendously. But now it was not what she needed. She needed a face. Thank you. Thank you. I wanted to just start by talking about the beginning of the novel.、Um, as as we've mentioned, Jaja, in the first scene, finds her husband dead in、mm-hmm. their bathtub. And the novel sort of moves forward from there. Was that an image you always knew was going to be at the beginning of your novel, and the thing that sets off the the journey that she takes?、Uh, not always, but、uh, starting from quite early on, that seemed、uh, like the right choice for for the story that I wanted to tell.、Uh, I wanted to tell a story about a woman sort of、uh, getting over grief and widowhood,、um, and the rather sort of shocking、uh, image of. How her husband died sort of came to me a bit afterwards. It felt like it had to be surprising. It had to be unexpected、uh, because she wasn't fully aware of you know all the problems in in her relationship, or she was trying to sweep it under the rug.、Um, so it sort of needed something、um, startling and something unexpected for her to kick off her journey. Yeah, and another thing that's unexpected is, of course, you talk about grief and widowhood, and when you hear that, you think, "Oh, grief because you're in a marriage w- with someone who you loved very much、mm-hmm. and who loved you very much." And of course, we learn very quickly <laughs> that that wasn't the kind of marriage、yeah. they had at all. No, not at all.、Uh, but I think, nonetheless,、uh, there can be an overwhelming sense of grief as well, even though you haven't really loved someone. You know, her, her marriage, though perhaps unconventional,、uh, was still nonetheless a very legitimate. Sort of marriage in her head, and it was what she believed marriage should be.、Uh, so just getting over—it wasn't just getting over, you know, losing this person she's been spending her life with, but also getting over the fact that you know she was perhaps wrong, and that it wasn't really working out after all. It really strikes me that her narrative is really one of self-determination as well,、mm-hmm. because the way that marriage is described, you know, she, she's been in some ways quite passive about it,、mm-hmm. right, and and. I love the way that you interrogate the spaces that roles for women are still 
allowed to be in, right? Mm -hmm. Which can be in some ways more restrictive than they need to be necessarily. And for me, Jaja feels like a character who she's almost released from this reality that Mm -hmm. would have probably been fine, (laughs) but also quite limited, right? And, you know, she's trying to capture something that is so much more expansive. Right, of course. Uh, It's not, you know, it wasn't so black and white, obviously, from the way I've written it, it seemed like her marriage was, you know, confining and his death in a way liberated her. But at the same time, it sort of shook her grounds a bit and she has to sort of recast everything and just like reboot her life after after he just left her with pretty much nothing. This is a story that's set in Beijing and Tibet, um, some parts of the novel as well. And and you grew up in Beijing and I Mm -hmm. really felt as I was reading it that I got this amazing sense of Beijing as a city and I wonder when you were writing this did you want to give a really full sense of Beijing as a city and what did you want to convey about it well I wanted I wanted it to feel authentic I wanted the I wanted Jia to feel like uh, since we're following her journey I wanted it to feel like that this was the city she grew up in and she she knew the city very well um, and she would be noticing things that are different perhaps to someone who's more foreign to the city so so I, I wanted most of it to to feel natural to feel like we're following someone who who has who you know has been living and breathing of Beijing and I'm glad that came through pretty well thank yeah, you definitely. you get such a strong sense of it yeah but then Tibet right comes as this very contrasting right. vision of a very very different place mm-hmm. um and did you enjoy writing those bits? And have you spent time there? Because it felt so real. Oh, I, I loved writing writing that bit. Um, I I have spent some time there. Uh, I've been sort of going quite often in the past few years. And each time I try to spend a few weeks uh, just, you know, going to the more sort of rural areas of Tibet because there's something quite surreal about, uh, well, first of all, the altitude kind of, screws with her head and then you're you're in this dreamy state already and then the, the whole place is just so beautiful and so rich with with history and culture and religion um and writing about it was uh, a very different experience than writing about Beijing um just like how Jia Jia was experiencing it as an sort of alien land um that she's very intrigued by uh I was as well and and that was just really really fun to write about and you mention surreal, and mm-hmm. there's a real undercurrent of the surreal. Well, not even undercurrent, just <laughs> presence <laughs> of the surreal in this right. novel. Right. And it features this place called the World of Water, which she goes into once in a while, and we're not quite sure what it is, and we learn more about it as the novel goes on. But as you say, even once she gets to Tibet, there is something that's surreal about the entire place mm-hmm. that's there. So. I guess what I want to ask you is, when you set out to write this story, do you think of yourself as a surreal writer? Was that something that you always wanted to engage with? Or was it something that grew naturally out of your storytelling? Do you distinguish between the real and the surreal? I don't, uh, not as much as um, I'd like to. But I I think for for me, it came as... uh, a very natural and almost the only way for me to capture some of the experiences I think of what, what of my own and of um, the characters in the story, and just the sort of the, the strangeness of 
living in this time and in a city like Beijing, um, where you know everything is sort of constantly shifting and changing and morphing into something else um, entirely. And and the the surreal kind of felt like the most appropriate way to or, or you know something that that's not so grounded in reality felt uh, like the most appropriate way to, to capture that. And sometimes it would feel to me uh, in a way more like reality than reality is. Um, so, yeah. yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> also, there's a line that really stood out to me that um, Jaja says to Renzi, who's a writer that she meets in Tibet, and she says, we explain things that we don't understand by using other things that we don't <laughs> understand. Um, <laughs> Which rang incredibly mm. true. And it made me think, you know, do you think that human beings need metaphor, basically, in order to function? Because <laughs> there's so much that we can't grasp right. that we have to just live mm. alongside somehow. Yeah. I, I think we need not only metaphor, but just uh, an immense amount of imagination to to make sense of things that we, we have no idea about. Uh, I think our sort of knowledge of the world we live in is is rather limited, even, you know, given the gigantic amount of information we do know, um, it's still such a tiny sliver of, you know, what's going on in this universe. And and uh, I do think something more metaphorical and imaginative um, is quite crucial to, to just, you know, being able to navigate the world we live in. Well, one of the things I loved about the way you use the world of water in the book is that it isn't experienced in the same way by everyone who visits mm -hmm. it, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's that felt very powerful because we can reach for the same metaphors as one another right. to try and capture something that's beyond our comprehension. But actually what we take from them individually is always going to be a bit different. Right. And you have so many characters in this book who are searching for something or trying to capture mm -hmm. something that's mm -hmm. beyond their mm -hmm. learning. And writing and making art whether it's sculpture or painting mm -hmm. kind of um comes across as a way of recapturing things that are lost or things that we don't mm -hmm. yet know and i i wonder you know is that how you relate to your own writing are you writing to try and discover uh yeah i'm i'm glad you you mentioned that sort of all the characters are are searching for something that's also something i find that i write a lot about and and a lot of them are searching for something that they don't even, they're not even fully aware of, whether it's, you know, home, a, a sense of home or belonging or an escape from something. And so Jia Jia does it sort of through her painting. Her mother did it through her sculpting. And um, it's even same with the old man we meet in Tibet. And and for me, I definitely, definitely do that with, um, with writing, uh, I think. For me, writing is is the most effective way to, to sort of make sense of everything, um, everything that doesn't make sense, <laughs> and then you know putting it into translating translating it into into a story or into an image or uh, you know something on the page. I think there's there's a certain degree of processing going on in the subconscious um, that is quite crucial. I think to me. I wanted to come back to Jaja being an artist mm -hmm. because I can't help but think that her art is a kind of cipher for talking about the creative process more generally. Mm -hmm. And 
can you talk about that decision to make her an artist and what you really wanted to convey in these scenes where we really do see the process of her art and mm -hmm. how she finds things mm -hmm. through right. painting. Right. She hadn't been a painter sort of for a long time. She, she sort of gave up painting after uh, she got married and sort of just had it as a side project. Um, so she's not, you know, she, she's an artist and she identifies as, you know, an artist more than sort of any other career. Um, but at the same time, she, she's not someone who has been working on it, you know, for 40, 50 years to be, you know, so uh, knowledgeable about art. And you do see her trying to, you know, capture sort of more abstract things like water and not really being able to fully connect with it um, at the beginning of the novel. And her journey towards getting to know her own art and, and discovering her her own art, um, I think works as a sort of a good parallel with her discovering sort of um, things in her past that she wasn't very certain about either. So, so, so it's, it's sort of the two um, quests sort of worked nicely together and, and uh, talking about her art, writing about her art seemed like a more sort of abstract uh, way of, of complementing her, you know, personal psychological journey and her sort of journey as a whole. Did you that do any, <laughs> it does make sense. Did you do any research about how somebody might paint something or did you just feel your way into that? I paint sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I try to paint sometimes. I never really had any um, ed proper education in it. But um, yeah, I, I uh, painted much more while I was writing this novel just to just to, you know, sort of know what I'm talking about. And, you know, I, I have a lot of sort of artists around me and, you know, did some sort of very casual interviews and watched other people sort of paint and not, not even in sort of oil painting, which is what Jia Jia does predominantly, but also, you know, Chinese ink painting, watercolors and et cetera. And I really tried to uh, find out sort of the the... Uh, the limits of, you know, painting as a craft or the lack thereof and really tried to see um, what are the possibilities with, with oil painting because I know that, you know, it, it's quite complex of an art. But at the same time with modern modern art, whether, you know, there are certain steps that could be, uh, you know, avoided and certain other things that could be added. So that part of the research I had to do quite a little bit more. Yeah. There's a real strong sense that you know, every art requires practice, mm -hmm. you know, right? Yeah. Like, and that, that it seems like such a simple thing to say, but I think it can be very easy to imagine. We, I think we have a, a perception that talent can just be immediate. Mm -hmm. And sure, you know, inspiration can be immediate, but actually learning a craft is something that takes yeah. time. And I love the way that with Jaja's character, she, um, she wants to paint water, but she can't quite yet, you know? Right. And that's like, I, I think that's a struggle that is very familiar to anyone who's ever tried to make anything. <laughs> you know? right. But I love the way that you present it as though the thing she wants the most, if she looks at it straight on, she can't see mm -hmm. it. And she has to approach it kind of sideways and around, yeah. um, which I thought of as quite a an elegant metaphor for so many things in life, right? Thank like you. if we try to make a straight line right, to right. something, it doesn't and tend... sometimes it's accidental too. It might just 
you know, fall on your head one day and, and without you expecting it at all. And then once you have it sort of right there in front of you, you also don't know how to, what to do with it because you've been like searching for it sort of all your life. And once you actually have it, it's, it's quite uh, unsettling as well. Yeah, well, I mean, like, as you say that, it makes me think there's something very strong in this novel about um, how difficult it is to be happy, right? right. And to, like, find happiness right. and make peace right. with it. Um, and actually, you know, there are lots of characters in this novel who are suffering in different mm -hmm. ways and for different reasons. And there's a quote which actually, Carrie, you pulled out, which Ren C says, which is, pain is pain. There are various things that bring about pain, but in the end, we all feel it in the same way. Which is it? Yeah, it's an interesting idea. I don't know. Do you think? Do you agree with him? I I do agree with him because I I think uh, this is purely just sort of my thoughts um, and perspective. But I think you know a lot of sort of human emotion can be really um, condensed and boiled down to to you know a few very powerful core ones. Like pain is one of them, you know, and love is one of them, and and th there's of course, certain different ways um, we can be brought these ex emotions via different channels in different ways. But in the end, if you're in pain, um, like two people who are in pain who don't share the same story can can relate to each other in a way that can be more powerful than two people who had experienced the same thing. You know, so so I I do I do agree quite a lot with him. Yeah, I, that's a really wonderful way to put it, and. Again, it made me think of the story, which you're talking about boiling down and condensing things. That's sort of how I felt about the story sometimes. <laughs> you know, it's so simple in other ways, but so packed with emotions and symbols mm -hmm. and ideas in other ways. Um, it feels like there's something very symbolic and almost fabulistic about mm -hmm. the story, and it, and but without losing a sense of real human emotion. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, well, I wanted to ask you about some of the symbols in the story because those seemed so present and important mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. the kind of storytelling that you're doing here. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if that's how you think about stories in a kind of symbolic way as well as one that is trying to tap into an experience of pain or happiness. Yeah, I, I don't... Uh, when I'm writing it, I, I try not to uh, be overly sort of analyzing the symbolic meaning of... of or trying to instill everything with with something symbolic. I think, in a way, that could also be rather limiting. If you, if I say just you know, in my head even that A equals to B and A symbolizes B, and and I, you know, I don't sometimes just the experience of going through life with so much strange, so much strangeness around. I I don't know what any of that symbolizes, um, and I don't think it's such a a clear thing I think it there's something much more complex and mysterious about about all of it but having said that I, I there is you know a degree of metaphor in, in the story I think that could mean different things to different people it might mean a certain thing to me but I did not I, I didn't want to I didn't want to project too much uh, onto the meaning of, of the more surreal aspects of the story Right. It reminds me a little, we interviewed Deborah Levy um, mm -hmm. last year and reminds me a little bit of how she uses symbols, which is like the, the symbols are almost there to be elusive. Mm -hmm. They're they're never, you're never going to fully understand what they mean, but maybe mm -hmm. that makes them more powerful because they have more than one interpretations. Right. And like you were talking about before Octavia with water, right. you know, water means so many, water suffuses this book right. in so many ways, but you could never pin it down 
materially right. or in terms of its symbolic meaning. Right. I remember uh, in high school sort of really not really hating, you know, literary analysis analyses for, you know, novels and trying to, you know, find a symbolic meaning and, you know, a red curtain and trying to just be like, this means that. Um, so I, I sort of, when I was writing, I kind of wanted to, to stay away a little bit from that and just to make it a bit more confusing, <laughs> a bit more, a bit more mysterious, a bit more um, vague and, you know, some, some, to, to have it encompassing much more than, than what I think it is. I guess that way also you leave space for the fact that everyone reads through the veil of their own experience, right? Mm-hmm. People seek what they need in mm-hmm. a text, I think, a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And it's it's what one of the things that's so fun about discussing books with people, right? Where you, you think, you're like, well, it was about this. And they're like, no, it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> it's about this totally different thing for me. But I, and one of the things that is kind of a fairly uh, solid theme in this is the relationship between parents and children mm-hmm. and the schism that comes around, right? And how hard it is to see one another clearly, I think, mm-hmm. in that relationship dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, and also just the thing where I think as a child, you feel like you understand the totality of your parent mm-hmm. because you need them. <laughs> right. But obviously there's so much about their life that you don't have mm-hmm. access to that right. came before you and even alongside you. Right. Um, and I, yeah, I wanted to ask why you wanted to write about that that relationship and also really just, I mean, do you think we can ever fully understand our parents and do you think we should ever try? <laughs> I definitely think we should try. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I think just as as a child, you sort of think of your parents as, you know, your parents and, and you never, it's hard to see them as human as well. Um, and even if you're, you know, 20 or 30 or 40, you, you might still not see them as being a human just like you. They might still you know, be, be your mother. You might still think of them as the mother you had when you were five. Um, and then there are moments, you know, where you're, you're resentful or unhappy about them. And then you sort of realize or something happens and you realize that, oh, they, they have, they're just like me. They're, you know, they're, they're like my friends. They're like other people I know. They're 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 human as well, um, and I think those moments can be uh, sort of hard to wrap your head around, and and can lead to a lot of either confrontations or lack of, and you sort of just try not to talk about it, um, or or you sort of confront them in a way where you expect too much from them still, but they won't be able to deliver, um, and I think that relationship permeates uh, Jia Jia's life and has sort of been um, part of my own experience as well. Um, so so I wanted... It's funny because originally when I was thinking of the story, that was only sort of a side thing that Jia Jia had, and then it became, you know, the, the most sort of essential thing in her in her journey from into her past as well as sort of into her future. So I sort of just wrote wrote into that, and I think it's you know reconnecting with her parents, whether you know it's her passed away mother or or her father, uh, became something really essential for her to navigate her own life now, and just to know them as you know just to to learn to love them as humans as well, not just as your parents. I think was something 
that was important for me. And I think I came away with the impression that to move forward, you have to look backwards. That's certainly <laughs> what where she arrives is only she can only start her life again once she understands her parents mm-hmm. and her past. Um, and that was a very powerful theme. And and actually, the theme of our show today, inspired by your book, is new beginnings, oh. which we thought would work <laughs> for the new year. But Perfect. also, it's it's such a potent idea in this book is starting mm-hmm. over and so mm-hmm. many of these characters are trying to begin their lives again mm-hmm. whether they've chosen that or whether it's been chosen for them and I wonder if you when we were thinking about this theme there are so many books that are about starting over and I mm-hmm. wonder why you think that's such a potent theme for fiction in particular uh I think first of all it makes for a very good story <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <That> was <laughs> to um for for something to sort of kick off a journey for you know restarting or revisiting or uh, reboosting or re whatever, um, I, I think that I think a lot of people uh, can empathize with that a lot because we're all sort of constantly revisiting things and you know um, rebooting our lives and. Like whether it's from you know a very minuscule sort of scale to our entire lives, and that there's something really exciting and frightening and liberating about reading about a character, a character who you know is starting anew and is trying to to navigate something unfamiliar. Um, so I think. For me, at least, that's that's a big reason why I find so I find myself empathizing with a lot of fictional characters. Yeah, whenever I read books about starting again, I, they make me want to burn down my life and start again. <laughs> <laughs> I right. always have that itch, you know. <laughs> right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I'm going to Tibet, everyone. <laughs> that's the answer. Yeah. Well, part of it is is wanting the life the life of this character, isn't it? It's like yeah. wanting to have the courage that she has to discard everything and start again right. but at the same time she sort of felt like there was no other sort of path for her to it, it felt like for me at least I think it it was it was an inevitable kind of path that she had to go go on like there's something in the back about sort of her kind of fate uh, that sort of led her into that path that her sort of parents went on long ago um, while they were while, while she, her mother was pregnant with her so, yeah. yeah, I wanted to ask you about your uh, your your writing process. I get a, a mm-hmm. little bit because the prose is very clear and very stripped back. Your style is mm-hmm. quite Spartan at times, actually, mm-hmm. which I think works very well when you're describing this. Um, y- it would be easy to tip into a very florid style, mm-hmm. right, when writing right. about the world of water and right. things like that. And I wonder, was that something you had to be careful of, or? does this do you strip back a lot after you do a first draft or is this very natural for you this kind of style um, I think a bit of both um I, I find it even hard to just to write in very floral language um and I, I like the cadence of sort of more short uh sentences uh where I, I guess for for this novel in particular it um, I, I didn't really go through that many drafts, but I wrote very slowly. Um, sort of every sentence I wanted it to, I, I wanted sort of every word to count, and I didn't want to, you know, just write whatever was coming into my head. I don't really work that way, so so I guess that 
also contributed to how it turned out um, to be something that feels rather condensed um, and sparse. And, and, and sometimes, like you said about sort of how, how it's, how you feel it's appropriate for like this more like sort of surreal kind of undertone of it. For me, writing about especially the more sort of magical, surreal parts of the novel, it felt, it felt really hard for me even to capture um, that image uh, with more detail. Um, it, it, in my mind, the images sort of came in, you know, tiny details like the, the little fish, but not really, I, I couldn't, I wouldn't be able to describe um, that experience using more, too much. I feel like it's, it's better to, to leave spaces for the imagination. And I also feel more comfortable writing this way. So mm. it all worked out. <laughs> That's a lovely way to put it, leaving spaces for the imagination. I wish some other writers would do that. Meow. New beginnings. Give us some names. Sassy Carrie. And you, it, it's been a total delight to have you on. Thank you so much. We loved your novel, Braised Pork. Um, and it's out in bookshops now. Now we're going to take a short break to bring you a word from our new sponsors, Picador. We're really excited that they've come on board to sponsor Larry Friction. It's going to help us keep making shows for you. So thank you, Picador. Picador have been publishing some brilliant short story collections lately and have more planned for the next year. Octavia, do you think there's been a resurgence of interest in short stories lately? I, I actually do, yeah. I think it's partly down to the way that people share things online. And the fact that individual short stories often get published in magazines and journals with links that are super easy to send around, you know, like the famous cat person on the New Yorker, for example. Um, and then hopefully that leads people to discover an author's full collection. What, what do you reckon? Yeah, I reckon there's been a change, especially in UK publishing. People are much more willing to read short story collections, and it's really exciting. I also think prizes like the White Review Short Story Prize are doing a lot to promote them. Um, and, and some brilliant authors have come out of that, including Julia Armfield, who won that prize, and then Picador published Salt Slow, which is a just brilliantly inventive, haunting, ambitious, queer collection of short stories. Yeah, it's such a great read. She's got a really distinctive voice. Um, and actually, another one of Picador's short story writers is Wendy Erskine, whose collection Sweet Home came out last year, um, full of cleverly observed moving stories set in the author's native Belfast, and really a perfect example of the kind of really exciting new writing that's com coming out of Ireland right now. Also, both of those collections are released in audiobook by Picador's, so you can listen on the go, however you prefer listening. I've really gotten into audiobooks lately. Yeah, me too. Also, short story aud audiobooks are perfect because sometimes they're only half an hour. So if you've got like your 30 minutes to kill on the tube, bingo. Find out what other wonderful short stories Picador have in store by tuning into our next mini-sode in a couple of weeks. How's That's that for suspense? <laughs> This is Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, back here with Octavia Bright, the lovely Octavia Bright. <laughs> the wonderful Octavia Bright. Oh my God, stop. Don't no. stop. <laughs> Never stop. To talk about this month's theme, which is new beginnings. I'm sitting up very straight because my microphone's quite high today. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I'm feeling ready. Very maybe, ready. Yeah, maybe you'll be 
more forceful in yeah. your opinions. That's not it. that you need help with that. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, no, I meant that in a good way. <laughs> okay, you're very, you know, your mind. Thank you very much. Anyway, okay, new beginnings. So much of fiction is about transformation and renewal, as as we talked about with Anne. You know, it it makes a good story. First, let's just talk about why new beginnings and transformations make such good stories in literature. Well, I think because part of us always wants them, you know, like they, they hold so much promise. And uh, I don't know, dissatisfaction is a fundamental part of life for every human being. Right. So the promise of a new beginning and the promise of shaking off that sense of frustration or limitation is always, always exciting. I mean, especially to me, <laughs> speaking totally from personal experience. But no, I think that there's even if one doesn't want a new beginning in one's own life, reading about someone else experiencing one and that that energy that comes from it, even if it comes out of great peril or great hardship, as often these stories do, um, there's there's such power in it, I think. And it, it can be a very optimistic position to occupy if you're inhabiting the consciousness of a character. But I also think that there is something in, and there's something in Anne's book in Braised Pork about this as well, where great the great bravery that sometimes a new beginning requires is often called into being by hardship and by having your back against the wall. Like human beings, are, um, it's in our nature to want to be comfortable. And sometimes it can take a lot of discomfort to galvanize a, a big change. Um, and I think that's really interesting territory to write in and around as well. Yeah, yeah. Sort of modeling behavior that we would m- not immediately feel that we have the bravery for ourselves but mm-hmm. if we can see it in another character there's something very optimistic about reading ways in which other people have changed their lives right exactly or found new beginnings in the midst of something really yeah. heartbreaking or difficult right definitely and and it, as Anne said it just I mean ma- somebody having to restart their life is the plot of a novel already because right. taking a journey is a story yeah isn't it exactly but also you know I I know that Laurie Moore is a name that comes up a lot when we're thinking about writers who write about new beginnings and actually short stories are perfect for new beginnings because in a collection of short stories you get 10 new beginnings <laughs> sorry to be facetious but what I mean is in any form of fiction that needs a catalyst to begin a story then a new beginning is is a, is a very elegant and um, available option basically yeah. Totally. So let's talk about the different kinds of new beginnings that you can have in fiction. And I'm really interested in this question of optimism, because I wonder if if there are new beginnings that aren't optimistic. Well, I guess the point is at the beginning of the new beginning, you don't know whether it's going to be optimistic or pessimistic. And like the cause for it, as we were saying, could be negative. But I don't know. I think I'm of the perspective that it's always positive to have a new start. And and there are so many moments in life that bring them, whether it's the end of a relationship or the beginning of parenthood or the beginning of a new job or moving to a new country or the loss of a parent. Like these are experiences that we're all going to have by and large, you know, give or take a few, but we're all gonna lose our parents. We're all gonna move to new places. We're all gonna start new jobs at different times in our lives. So I think, I think just the fact of newness is, in itself optimistic because it's a possibility that we don't know where it's yeah. going to end up but there are yeah there are plenty of stories about new beginnings I'm sure where the new beginning doesn't end up delivering its promise yeah. I mean that's a very real experience in the world and also I think 
if the new beginning is born of grief, um, I, I think you could argue, I was thinking about this novel Enon by Paul Harding, which is... I've not read. He wrote Tinkers, which won the Pulitzer Prize. And I read Enon basically because it's set in my hometown of Wenham, Massachusetts. And he's like <laughs> the only famous person that's come out of Wenham, Massachusetts. But it's an amazing novel. And I think that's a novel that it's about grief, but the way that it ends is not the grief hasn't disappeared and the problem hasn't gone away and the grief remains. And part of the message of that novel is that we can tell ourselves all kinds of stories about change, but sometimes things don't change and like sometimes pain, pain can morph, but it doesn't completely disappear. I think that's very true, but I think that's maybe that is that hits at the false promise of the new beginning. It's never that you get to escape your past self it's just that you get to try something different with mm. your present self and open a different possibility for your future self. But the things that you've lived through, they don't leave you. But then there are, are books like uh, Virginia Woolf's Orlando, for example, that are just about beginnings for the joy of beginnings almost. And I mean, there's obviously she's making a lot of deeper points in that book, but it's a book that is reveling in the joy of possibility of constantly morphing and changing and the kind of dynamic energy that that can bring which is doing something very different. Yeah, yeah. It's really different from maybe some of the more traditional narratives that we've been talking about so far. Like migration, of course, is is a big catalyst for talking about change when somebody has to move cultures and assimilate somewhere else or relationships, um, you know, reinventing the self and deciding you want a different life. But, um, you know, new beginnings can also be shape-shifting. And, you know, I know you love that book, uh, Paul takes the form of a mortal girl, which was inspired by Orlando. And the the playfulness of change can also come into it, can it? Yeah, big time. And then you have the flip side of that, which can be the sinister side of change with things like the talented Mr. Ripley, right? Mm. Which is all about reinventing the self, but essentially by stealing someone else. <laughs> Such a creepy book. Yeah, self self-reinvention is not necessarily a good thing, especially no. when it's used to sinister ends. Right, and manipulate and murder and all the rest. I was also thinking of books that constantly change. So you talked about short story collections. I was also talking, thinking about Homegoing by Yagi Yassi, who, which is a book I've talked about. Every chapter is a different generation. Every chapter restarts the story. And it's a very daring decision to make when it comes to renewing, literally renewing a book. But yeah. in, in that book, it really works. Um, or Life After Life by Kate Atkinson, which I haven't read. But that book's structure, again, is all about renewal. It's it's about someone who keeps being reborn um, yeah. and lives their life over and over and over again. That's It's a fascinating concept, isn't it? And again, like you can just, as a writer, it can open you up to such feats of imagination. Along that more meta line, I guess, there's things like Raiwela, a uh, hopscotch by Julio Cortázar, which is a book that you can read in a completely non-linear way if you want, meaning you can have new beginnings a thousand times over within the same text. You can revisit it in many different ways, which is, again, quite an exciting thought. Yeah, there there was that novel, um, The Unfortunates by B.S. Johnson, which famously you could rearrange. Oh, yeah. But I have to say, like, uh, I don't. I don't like the idea of a novel. I could just begin in any place and have lots of new beginnings. Interesting. I want to read a story. But I mean, that that is a story. Mm. Is it though? 
Is yeah, it no. the, I just think you're being lazy, Carrie. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, I'm do teasing. you actually want to read The Unfortunates by B.S. Johnson? No, I have absolutely no yeah. desire to read The Unfortunates <laughs> by B.S. Johnson, but Rayuela by Cortázar is a phenomenal book okay. and very exciting and interesting. Also, did I tell you about my experience of listening to Anna Karenina on audiobook? No. Because I listened to it and my thing was on shuffle and I never knew. So the end of Anna Karenina came in my listening of it in the middle. And the book made perfect sense still. Oh, my God. Isn't that baffling? How have you not told me about that before, first of all? But that is so fascinating. Yeah, so fascinating. And it, I honestly didn't notice until um, I was several chapters on from the end that had come in the middle. And then something happened. And I was like, oh, wait a second. This doesn't seem right. And realized that my um, iPod had shuffled it. Can I tell you my story about Anna Karenina? Please. I've tried to read it three times and I, I have never been able to get through it. <laughs> I forgive you. <laughs> Thank no, you. No, it's completely fair. It's a, it's a good book, but it's also there are other books. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But uh, what well, that does bring up interesting because we're talking about new beginnings and actually plenty of fiction does not move in a linear fashion. Absolutely. Yeah. And so new beginnings can be at the end of a book or an ending can be in the middle. And that is one of the joys of, of fiction totally. and storytelling. Yeah, exactly. I guess another way in is thinking about the true story new beginning you know the memoir um the like I did it I made a change and now my life is better like Wild by Cheryl Strayed um which I haven't read or Eat Pray Love by Elizabeth Gilbert which obviously is this hugely successful book um or one that I really loved The Outrun by Amy Littrop which is about recovery from um alcohol addiction and about a relationship with, a, with her parent with her father um and swimming and water as a um symbol of new beginning and also a very practical experience of going wild swimming and shocking the body into waking in a new way every day um which is a beautiful and she she writes very beautifully about it but i think that there can be a sense of snobbery about new beginnings in an autobiographical context right which is very at odds with again uh, the fact that we maybe like it in fiction but people are snobby about it when it's non-fiction mm. seems really messed up well and it seems very gendered, doesn't it? Massively. It's, so many of these memoirs are about women starting their lives over again. And I think people see that in a very specific category of inspirational memoir. People, I mean, Eat, Pray, Love is not the best book in the world, but it is actually, for all of the criticism it got, it it thinks very deeply about what it means to start your life over again. Well, also it spoke to so many people. So, you know, if something is is speaking to that many people in that kind of profound way, make space for it, you know? Yeah, um, and, there, and there's, I think there's an element of sexism in how these things are viewed, but also who is allowed to start over. And who is expected to start over. Mm. I think that's the thing. And I, when we were thinking about this theme, I kept remembering Gia Tolentino's essay, Always Be Optimizing, which is about the fact that women need to constantly be upgrading themselves and working to achieve the next model of themselves. Um, and, you know, it's January, it's New Year, New You, women's magazines having an absolute you know, shit fit about them, <laughs> about all these possible ways in which we can become better. Maybe men's magazines do the same. Maybe I am, my perception is wrong because I'm not reading broadly enough. But I do think that the way that the fashion industry works, the way that the beauty industry works, you know, about rejuvenation and like make your skin younger and a different outfit every season is like a new beginning in itself. And it does feel gendered and it doesn't feel fair yeah. in that way. And it also 
brings up the fact that choosing a new beginning is often a very privileged place. One hundred percent. And I think you can't talk about, especially these memoirs about starting over, without talking about the fact that people, you know, not everyone can choose to leave their marriage and go to Italy and Bali and wherever else Absolutely. to try to find themselves. Yeah. And so I think some of the snobbishness comes from that. It's like, this isn't a path that's available to everyone. Not everyone can blow up their life and be okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Which is very fair and very real. Should we talk about our favorite books about new beginnings? No, I want to keep going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Let's start a new beginning. Oh, to girl. Okay. No, okay. no, no lay, lay it on me. I want it. I want it. Do it properly. Mm, uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> Okay. Now, now I'm scared of leaving the comfort of our previous chat. Oh, here she is. She's on fire today, ladies okay, and gentlemen. What, what, what are you recommending, Octavia? Um, I'm recommending a book called Days Without End by Sebastian Barry, which I spoke about, I think I recommended a long time ago on this show. And it's a book that has stayed with me. It is so brilliant. It's just a brilliant, brilliant read. But it's, it, the new beginning in it is a, it's because it's about a man who crosses the Atlantic from Ireland, which is famine ravaged. His family have been... Um, murdered essentially by the famine um, and by the sort of political situation and he he crosses the Atlantic to the States to rebuild his life and to start again Um, but he arrives in a country that's in the midst of its own violent and lawless self-creation and the dream of this new life is very quickly shattered by the reality of what he's coming to Um, however then all these other new avenues open up to him that are completely unforeseen and very, very tenderly written and very beautiful. And the story that follows is full of ruptures and and, um, new frontiers, basically, of land, but also of love, of gender, of sex, of alternative family structures. He falls in love with a man and they adopt uh, a Native American child. And it it goes to places that you would never have imagined. Um, And creates this very kind of tender and beautiful portrait of the basically the fact that we never know what's coming Mm. you know I think that's a big part of the narrative it's just that if you remain open um and that good things can come out of absolutely terrible tragedy but you're not necessarily going to know what they are when you take the first step towards them Mm. you know yeah I think that's a really good way to sum up what we've been talking about as well yeah thanks babe you're welcome. I'm going to recommend Washington Black by Essie Adujan, which listeners will know. Uh, she was on our show. It was one of my favorite books of last year. So I've talked about it a lot already, but it's it's a wonderful book. And I really liked thinking about it in the context of New Beginnings, if that makes sense, because I think what's really clever about this book, it's, it's about the protagonist is called Washington Black. He's born a slave on a plantation, but manages to become a free man and also manages to like escape this plantation and, and have this trip around the world so it's constantly filled with new beginnings both psychologically and physically but the book is also about how we can't escape our past and 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 the psychological effects of slavery really and and how Washington Black must confront these in his life um and so new beginnings in the shadow of um the horrible horrible reality of of slavery and what what it did to people both physically and psychologically i think it's so wise on that while also being just a rip roaring adventure and read and incredibly well written as well yeah it's a fabulous book it makes sense i enjoyed listening to you describe it in the context of this as well good choice thanks
I'm Carrie Plitt, back here with Octavia Bright and also Anne Yu to give our monthly book recommendations. So Octavia, would you like to start? I would love to start. Um, I am recommending a book called Exciting Times by Nisha Dolan, which I read over Christmas and it was a complete blast. Her writing is so dry and funny and sharp and... Um, her observations about love and sex under the conditions of structural oppression basically are very on point. <laughs> um, it's a it's about a, a young Irish woman called Ava who moves to Hong Kong to teach English and she's 22, I think. Um, and she gets into a couple of different relationships that shape her time there, one of which uh, is with a guy called Julian, who's an emotionally shut down English banker who went to Oxford and sums up everything that is kind of disgusting about the British class system, essentially. And then she meets a woman called Edith, who's a really switched on Hong Kong born lawyer. Um, who presents a completely different way of experiencing the world. And this kind of young character has to figure herself out in relation to these two very different people. It's full of really smart observations about the limits of language as well and how the way we use our language can shape our personalities and our emotional lives. Um, so she does a lot of comparison between Irish English and then the kind of English English that you're supposed to teach in a school in Hong Kong to young, wealthy Chinese children, essentially. Um and I also, I lived in Hong Kong for a bit when I was a kid, so I got a real kick out of how vividly she paints the city um, and the weird expat lifestyle over there, which is kind of grim. And and actually also to read a contemporary view on what contemporary colonialism looks like these days, right? And I was there in the 90s, so it was colonialism of a different kind. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I really recommend it. It's a great read. I have heard great things and I can't wait to read it it's published in june right so i think so yeah, yeah. i got an early reader copy yeah oh, okay. you know yeah swanky <laughs> yeah pretty uh <laughs> literary influencers over oh, here God, don't make me vomit <laughs> yeah no cry. i i have heard great things and i can't wait to read it it's also been endorsed by sally rooney oh gal. yes that's yeah. right yeah she's yeah. a big fan i think yeah and what book would you like to recommend i recently reread um village of stone by xiao lu guo Oh, I've never that. read it. No. no. Have you read her other book that she wrote in English? Yes. The, the Wait. Ingl the concise Chinese English dictionary for lovers. No, I haven't read it. I've read. I've read like excerpts from it, but no, oh, it's the hilarious. whole thing. Yeah, I hilarious. Mean, it's, it's hilarious. But I'm talking about the other book now. It's, <laughs> it's hilarious, but at the same time, very um, sort of a very emotional, impactful story. But anyway, but I read her. Uh, uh, I think I'm not sure if it's her uh, first novel, but um, it was written in Chinese originally and then translated into English. Um, it's a story about this uh, woman who uh, had was from a you know a tiny sort of fishing village in China, and then had moved away from it into a city. And one day she gets a delivery of uh, this massive eel um, from an unknown sender, and she uh, it kind of triggers a lot of memories of her her past in in the village she grew up in, um, and the father that sort of disappeared when she was a child and she sort of she was raised by her grandparents um and and it's it's a very it's a short short novel but very emotionally impactful and we, we sort of shift between her current life living with her boyfriend um and her past life that she had sort of in a way tried to forget about and um but couldn't um and the the prose is is very dreamy and very poetic, um, and w filled with wonderful um, images of the, the sea of a fisherman out at sea of um, this tiny little village that is made out of stone, pretty much. It's called so they call it village of stone, um, 
and sort of just her, her trauma from the past uh, and how that's infiltrated her, her life and, and she had been sort of unexpectedly um, forced into revisiting sort of her past. So that's been a really, it's, it's been a, such a pleasure like rereading it because it's been a while since I last read it. Um, and I've never read it in Chinese, so I might, I might do that next. That would be interesting yeah. to see how different it feels. Yeah. She's uh, such a phenomenal writer. She's great. And she, yeah. she's, she works across so many different sort of platforms because um, she's also an, a director and she works in film. And, um, and, and I've been to sort of a panel discussion with her before and she's really great. So highly recommended. We talked about rereading on a previous show. Are you a big rereader? Sometimes, yeah, yeah. Um, not with really long books, just because <laughs> <laughs> I'm really lazy. Um, but like short ones like these, it, it's nice. And sometimes I sort of just start from the middle and, and reread. Yeah. Um, Fascinating. Yeah. That book sounds great, though. Yeah. Thank you. It's great. Well, I'm going to recommend Kudos by Rachel oh. Cusk, you which I read over Christmas. You are such a Cusk Yeah, trip. I'm a, I'm a Cusk head. <laughs> it's the third book in the Outline trilogy, um, which if anyone listens to the show knows that I recently read Transit and really loved it. I was really, really glad to read Kudos, and I would really recommend reading the whole trilogy now that I've done it. Um, they are very similar to each other and also very dissimilar to each other in a way that I think really works um when read together kudos again follows the protagonist k um this time she's visiting an unnamed european country for a sort of book tour and for that reason i think this book is much more concerned than the other two with writing and the process of writing and the sort of industry that surrounds writing as well which it was kind of fun for me as um somebody who works in publishing to yeah. to hear her rather scathing um <laughs> portraits of the various figures but also very human portraits. did you recognize anyone <laughs> I, I have some ideas about certain characters um but that's not the reason to read this the reason to read it is it is just this tour de force portrait of of humanity um, with a, a completely distinctive way of looking at the world. And, you know, it's about marriage. It's about relationships, something that she seems really concerned. About. It's also really about evil, which I find so fascinating because it evil is such an old fashioned word, isn't mm -hmm. it? You sort of don't think about that way of looking at morality, but right. evil as a word comes up over and over and over in these books. And it's a fascination of Kay, the characters and the last scene is shocking and baffling and confusing, and I'm not quite sure what to make of it, but it's worth reading the book alone just for that last scene and to think about, like, oh, my God, what does Rachel Cuss think about humanity and what does she think about men in particular? Yeah. And, I, and I think possibly she has quite a dire view of, of the male species, but I sort of loved that. So anyway, yeah, it, it's great, and I loved it. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to our interviewee and you, Rory Bowens at NTS, and to Eddie Knight for editing and music. Literary Fiction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. You can also get in touch with us by email litfriction at gmail.com. And we've been getting so many great emails lately. So many great emails. So keep them coming. Please do. They Sorry I'm happy. slow about replying to them, but I, we really love them. It is my fault. <laughs> it is actually my fault. <laughs> 
We'll be back next month. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction. <laughs>